We're in the third week of our Marriage 2.0 series. We're trying to figure out how to live out marriage the way God intended it to be lived out. This weekend, we are looking at what is the most important topics I think that we will ever address on this topic of family and marriage. It is the issue of divorce and remarriage. I, I understand it's a difficult, uh, it is a complicated subject. I realize that many of you sitting here right now, you've been scarred, you've been wounded by divorce. Some of you are in the middle of that pain and anguish right now. So I, I understand, I get it, there's a considerable amount of anxiety as you're wondering, what am I going to say over the next few minutes about divorce and remarriage. I just want to encourage you to relax because I want to tell you everything we're going to talk about over the next few minutes comes directly out of God's Word. It's not man's opinion, it's not my opinion, it's not some books that we read. It's right out of God's Word, which means at the end of the day, it is God's best for us. Now, you may not like it and you may not feel initially that it's God's best for us, but understand He created us. He knows us better than we know ourselves, and so He knows what's best for us. So I'm just going to encourage you over the next few minutes set aside your emotions. Set aside your preconceived ideas, and let's just dig in. Let's see what God has to say about this subject. If you have your Bible, I hope that you brought them this weekend. Let's turn over to Matthew chapter 19, and as you're turning, let me give you a little bit of background. Understand that in the days of Jesus, there were two schools of thought on the topic of divorce. One was called the school of Shimei. It had a very, very strict approach. It basically taught that you could only get divorced in a case of sexual immorality. It was very black and white, very cut and dry, that's it. But then on the other side, there was a school called the School of Hillel. They took a much broader approach. If you were here last weekend, Sam alluded to this. For example, if a wife burnt her husband's toast, they consider that grounds for divorce. If a wife went out in public with her hair down, it was considered grounds for divorce. If you got into an argument with your wife and she, she spoke so loudly that the next door neighbors could hear her, it was considered grounds for divorce. Oh, for the good old days, right? So, so in Jesus' day, you had this very, very strict approach, and yet you had this very, very, very liberal approach. Anybody want to guess which one was more popular, right? So in Matthew chapter 19, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they come to Jesus. They want to know uh, which side he supported. And Jesus begins to answer their question by going all the way back to God's original intent for marriage, let's look at that. It's kind of a little review of what we talked about a few weeks ago. Matthew 19, 4, Jesus said, haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And if you were here, you know that this is a reference to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. And then Jesus continued in verse 5, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And although this does include, this idea of one flesh, it does include the idea of the area of sexual intimacy. It does include that. But understand, this idea of being one flesh, it includes much more than that. It's talking about a oneness of heart. It's talking about a oneness of mind, a oneness of spirit. That is the marriage covenant as God designed it. That is the marriage covenant that we choose to enter into. And if we enter into that marriage covenant, it comes with two promises. First of all, there's the promise of loyalty, verse 5. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And understand, Jesus said this because in the first century, your highest human obligation was to your parents. But Jesus says when you get married, that's no longer true. When you get married, that's no longer the case. After you're married, your ultimate human commitment is to your spouse. That's why you leave your parents. That's why you cleave. That's why you're united to your spouse. The two become one. It's a promise of loyalty. But there's also a second promise that goes with this marriage covenant. It's a promise of intimacy. Verse 5, that's why a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The two will become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one. And again, this is a oneness of heart, a oneness of soul, a oneness of mind, a oneness of spirit. It's a oneness of body. That was God's intent. 
And when you get married, basically this is what you are promising to pursue. Your goal as a couple is to live the rest of your life not as two separate individuals, but as one. So understand, God's intention for marriage was that it be permanent. It was irrevocable. And that's why Jesus added in verse 6, so no one should separate what God has joined together. Now, the Pharisees we saw responded in verse 7, why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus corrected them in his response. He replied, Moses didn't command it. He permitted you to divorce, to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. And maybe it's translated this way in your version, hard-hearted. That's actually the Greek word, hard-hearted. It's made up of two Greek words. The first one is cardia. We get cardio from it. The second one is a Greek word, sclero. If it sounds familiar, we get our term arterial sclerosis from it. It's this idea of hardening of the arteries. But literally the Greek word means this, to dry up, to harden, to become tough. In other words, Jesus says your hearts, they used to be flexible. They used to be tender. When you first got married, that's the way it was. But now your heart has become hard. It's become inflexible. By the way, there's a lot of us here this weekend that are married. We remember what it was like when our heart was tender during those early days of dating. Maybe when we finally realized, oh, this is the individual that's going to be my spouse. Do you remember how tender your heart was? It seemed like you, you couldn't serve your spouse enough, your spouse to be. It seemed like you know, doing what they wanted you to do was a privilege. So that's why when we, we realized, oh, this is the person I'm going to marry, we carried her stuff up to her dorm room. And when we got married, guys, we carried the luggage, right, into the hotel. And when we brought her home, we carried her across the threshold. That's the way it is in the early days. I mean, if there's a conflict, you cannot go to sleep until it's resolved. It will drive you crazy. You're constantly giving your spouse the benefit of the doubt. But as you become hard-hearted, instead of seeking to serve your spouse, all of a sudden you want to be served by your spouse. Instead of seeking reconciliation, all of a sudden you're pointing your finger and you're blaming. Instead of confessing your own wrongdoing, you begin to exaggerate the other person's wrongdoing. I mean, good graces, all of a sudden a left out coffee cup becomes evidence of a major personality disorder. What is wrong with this person, right? And you just become a little more hard-headed. Hard-hard-headed. Yeah, that's, that's true too, but hard-hearted. And then this is what happens. You don't yell and scream. You just begin to take little exits from oneness. You withdraw a little bit. You don't look your spouse in the eyes the way you used to. You don't touch as much as you used to. You find yourself giving more attention to the children and less attention to your spouse. Men, you watch Sports Center more. You spend more time hanging out in the garage working on a project. Ladies, you spend more time going out with your girlfriends, maybe hitting the mall. Little exits. And then you multiply that a dozen times, a hundred times, a thousand times, a thousand little exits, and all of a sudden, you wake up one day and you look at the person that you married and you think, wow, I married the wrong person. This isn't what I thought it was going to be. My expectations aren't being met. I'm not happy. I'm going to get a divorce. Well, God makes it very, very clear in the Bible how he feels about divorce. He says this in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, I hate divorce. Any questions before we move on? God says, I absolutely hate it. Why did God hate divorce? It's because God knows the destructiveness that's involved when a marriage ends. So he says, I hate it. And I, I think it's God saying it almost with the attitude and emotion. It absolutely breaks my heart when I have to sit back 
and watch it unfold. Now, unfortunately, hard-heartedness is a human reality. And because of our hard-heartedness, sometimes we enter into self-destructive behavior. And because of that self-destructive behavior, understand there are some biblical reasons why God allows you to get divorced and then to get married again. But as you're going to see this weekend, there's only three. And I've read the Bible from cover to cover, and I've done the research. I can only find three. Let me give them to you. The first one is the case of sexual immorality. That's probably not a big surprise to you. This is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, and look at this, and marries another woman commits adultery. So Jesus says, if you divorce your wife for burning the toast, for talking too loud, for going outside the house with her hair down instead of it up in a bun and covered, if you do it for any other reason other than sexual immorality, you, and you get married, you are committing adultery. Why would Jesus say that? Well, it goes back to what we learned the very first week in the series. When we get married, it is God that joins us together. It is God that bonds us together. He's the one that transfers us in the, into, from two people into just one individual, a couple working together. The minister does not do that. The priest does not do that. The justice of the peace does not do that. God bonds you together. And so Jesus says, except in the case of immorality, if you divorce, the courts may approve, the judge may say it's okay, but from God's perspective, he says, you're still one. You don't really have grounds to walk away from that marriage. You're still in that bond. Now, when Jesus uses the term sexual immorality, understand this Greek word. He's referring to a continuing permissive lifestyle. If you were here last week, Sam alluded to the word. The Greek word is pornia. We get our English word pornography from it. Here's the definition. It means illicit sexual involvement repeatedly and without repentance. So this isn't a one-night stand, okay? That's not a lifestyle. It's certainly a moral failure, but according to this description, there's not a break in the bond. This idea of pornia, it includes the hardening of the heart, and, and this hardness works its way out in a lifestyle of sexual immorality. And because there's no repentance, and remember, the, the word repentance basically means you do a 180. God wants you to go this way. This is God's plan, God's will for your life. You decide, nope, I'm going to go this way. I'm going to do my own thing sexually. But at some point you realize, oh, I'm going the wrong way. I acknowledge that what God said is right and true. I'm going to do a 180, and I'm going to go God's way. But because there's not that, because there isn't repentance, the innocent spouse, understand, is under the constant threat of disease, STDs, emotional trauma. And the marriage is destroyed because there isn't repentance. So Jesus says that the spouse who stays faithful to that marriage has the option to walk away. And I stress that word option don't misquote me because when I come across this in marriage counseling almost without exception my advice is don't divorce even if there's been an affair even if there's been an adulter adulterous situation my advice 99% of the time is try to stay together try to make it work and I'll talk to the guilty party about uh, repentance and I'll talk about the two parties together about reconciliation and sometimes thank God it happens sometimes it doesn't and when it doesn't, Jesus gives the faithful spouse the option to walk away and to remarry. You have God's blessing to do that. So that's the first case. It's a lifestyle of immorality. There's another case in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. The apostle Paul writes this. Now for the matters you wrote about. And so the church at Corinth, they had contacted the apostle Paul. They said, we have some questions about this whole marriage thing. So he says, now for the matters you wrote about. 
He writes, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. Drop down to verse 7. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. And what Paul is saying there is, I wish everybody was single. Paul was single. He says, I wish everybody was like me. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner, another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, so to the singles and to the widows, it's good for them if they remain even as I. So Paul basically says this, if it were up to me, or if he was from Fuquay, he would say, if I had my druthers, you know, if I, it was up to me, I would encourage everybody to remain single. And here's his reason. You can read about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says this later on. Because if you remain single, you have the opportunity to be totally 100%, 24-7 sold out to God. Now, by the way, if you're here this weekend and you're single and you struggle with your singleness, uh, there's a book I would encourage you to get. It's uh, entitled Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. You can find the link to this book on our website. You can get it off of our phone app. And I would encourage you to go through that and understand what singleness is all about. And God may or may not have called you to singleness, but it would be a great book for you to read. But you got to understand, when Paul says this, he's not anti-marriage. He's not against marriage. He just knows that a single individual has more potential to make a greater impact in God's kingdom than someone who's married. And when you think about it, it's just common sense. For example, Laura, my kids, my grandkids, they require a certain amount of my time, and they should. And if I don't give them the time that they require, understand, I'm not a very godly man. I'm not a very godly husband. I'm not a very godly father. I'm not a very godly grandfather. But when I give them time, that takes time away from doing God's stuff. So that's what he's talking about here. He said, if I had my way, I'd recommend stay single so you can give yourself fully to the things of God. But according to verse 2, not everybody can do that. Look at verse 2. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. In other words, Paul says this, there are some people who just cannot be single. God did not wire them that way, and I'll be the first one to raise my hand and say, you're looking at one of them. God did not make me to be single. And that's why he added in verse 9, if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And that is not a very romantic reason to get married, but that's how Paul sums it up. That's how he sees it. If you're going to burn with lust, dang it, get married, right? Now, Paul shifts his focus from those who are single to those who are married, and this is where it gets a little dicey. Verse 10. But to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. This is what Paul is saying. If you're married, you figure out a way to stay married. If you're married, you figure out a way to make it work. Nurture that relationship, culture it, uh, or cultivate it, work at it. Go back and watch the DVD and, and, and review your vows, but do not walk away from your marriage. Do not leave your spouse, period. But then, when you get to verse 11, he comes back to reality and says this. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And he adds at the end of the verse, a husband should not divorce his wife. This is what Paul is saying. Listen carefully. He's saying even though the, the, the situation, the case may not be sexual immorality, what the, the, the issue that Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 19, Paul says, I'm realistic enough to know there are times you can't stay married. Maybe your life is at stake. Maybe your sanity is at stake. Maybe the safety of your children is at stake, and you cannot stay in the relationship. And so you leave the marriage, you divorce, but you don't have biblical grounds for a divorce because there's no lifestyle of sexual immorality 
Maybe the guy's just a jerk. Maybe she's just a jerk, right? Paul says this. If that's the case, your option is you can either stay single or if it works out, you can go back and remarry your spouse. That, that's your option. In other words, Paul says, if you feel like you need to get divorced, get divorced. Give us some space. Give us some time. Get some counseling. Pray for change. Allow time for healing. But it's very clear. He says your option is to either stay single or go back and remarry your spouse. And I'll just let you know, you're surrounded by a lot of couples this weekend. That has been their journey. That's been the journey that they've been on. And uh, they would say it was the right thing to do. But let me say this. Say you divorce your spouse, and in that process of being divorced, your spouse moves forward with their life. And say they get married, and they move on into another relationship. At that minute, they have broken the marriage bond, and you would then be free to marry. But the reality is, if they stay single, you stay single, unless you remarry them. Again, any questions? You're like, oh, yeah. In fact, some of you are trying to get on my list right now. You're emailing me for an appointment this week because you're thinking, well, my, you've got to hear my story because I'm the exception. This is what Paul was saying. No, 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 no. If you're not talking about a lifestyle of sexual immorality, here's your option. You stay single or you go back and remarry your spouse. Now, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just showing you what is in God's word. But hang in there because I think I have some encouraging news for you. In the last five minutes. I told you, you wish you would have been here for the last five minutes. Then Paul continues in verse 12. And again, if we're going to be the people God created us to be, we have to understand God's standard. Forget society standard and culture standard. What is God's standard? That's what we're looking at. Verse 12, to the rest. Well, who's left? He talked to the single and said, you're better off to stay single. He talked to the married and said, if you get divorced, you can stay single or you can go back and remarry your spouse. Who's left? This is the only place in the Bible that gives advice to the rest. And when Paul refers to the rest, he's referring to those who are unequally yoked. That's an interesting term that just means you have a believer who is married to an unbeliever. You have a Christian who is married to someone who is not a Christian. So Paul says this, to the rest I say, not the Lord. That does not mean that what we're about to read isn't inspired. It just means that when Jesus was on this earth, he didn't address this issue. So we can't go to the Gospels and see what Jesus had to say about it. But in the process of revelation, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, as God's, God's uh, perfect word, infallible word was being compiled, the Holy Spirit revealed this to Paul, and now he shares it with us. Verse 12, to the rest I say, not the Lord. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And let me tell you what's going on in the city of Corinth. The, the church has just started. It's sprung into existence. People are, are coming into relationships with Jesus Christ. They're becoming Christians. And often you would have a husband who became a Christian and maybe the wife didn't. Or the wife became a Christian and the husband didn't. And they're wondering, can I leave my spouse since they're not a Christian, find another Christian to marry and have this great Christian marriage together, right? Is that what I can do? Paul says, no, no. No, don't do that. Don't do that. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. Here's the situation. Let me give you an example. Let's say you and your spouse, you're, you're, neither one of you are Christians. You met in college. You fall in love. You, you decide to get married. You, you get married. You begin to cultivate a home and a family. Life's good. I mean, you're both non-Christians. It's not that big a deal. You don't really see the need for God in your life. But one day, let's say you're working at SAS, and they have those fancy little cafeterias, and somebody's playing the piano, you know. And uh, you look over there, and, and there's one of your coworkers reading their Bible. So you walk over and sit down and say, what are you doing? Well, I'm reading my Bible. And you get into a spiritual conversation, and maybe they invite you to Hope Community Church, and you show up one weekend, and you hear the gospel. 
and you realize that you are alienated, you're separated from God because of the sin in your life. The good news is God sent us a Savior. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for us, to pay the penalty for our sin. And if we will accept that by faith, that Jesus Christ paid the penalty, we can be reconciled back into a relationship with God. You hear that, you hear the gospel, you make the decision to become a Christian. You get in your car, you go home, you walk in the door Christian. But your spouse is still an unbeliever. Congratulations, you're now in the position that the Bible calls unequally yoked. You're a Christian, but you're married to someone who is not a Christian. Here's the question. Do you separate from your unbelieving spouse until he or she becomes a Christian? That was the question. Paul says definitely not. Verse 13, she must not send her husband away. He goes on and says to the husband, he must not divorce her. Why, Paul? Give us a reason. Verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise, your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Now that sounds like a lot of religious gibberish, but what does it mean? Paul is basically saying this. The presence of a, of a Christian partner, a Christian spouse in the home, positions the rest of the family living in that home to experience God's blessing. For example, the unbelieving spouse is going uh, to be influenced by the believing spouse. He or she is going to be exposed to the gospel. He or she is going to be under the continual influence of a godly lifestyle, at least hopefully. It's the same with the children. It doesn't mean that automatically your kids are Christians because a parent has become a Christian. It means that they're going to share the benefit of a believing parent. All of a sudden, if there's a Christian parent in the house, that parent's probably going to pray with the kids, bring them to church, check them in the kid's city, share the gospel with them, encourage them to make that relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what's going on here. So Paul says it's in the whole family's best interest if you stay in that family. But notice in verse 15, yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. Let him leave. The brother or the sister, and that's reference to Christians, is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Understand, in that verse, everything revolves around the phrase, is not under bondage. Under bondage to what? Again, we've seen in this series that when we get married, it's God that joins, glues, it's God that bonds us together. In fact, it's actually translated that way. If you have your Bible, you drop down to verse 39. A wife is bound as long as her husband leaves. This word bound in the Greek is the same idea as the word cleaving in Genesis chapter 2. But when you get to verse 15 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, there's an unbonding, there's an uncleaving because the unsafe partner walks away from the marriage, deserts the marriage. So Paul says this, when there is desertion of a marriage relationship by an unbelieving partner, he says you're free from the bond. The bond is broken. You have God's blessing to get remarried. Now let me caution you again. We're not talking about an argument where you're, your spouse walks out and slams the door. I mean, good gracious, we've all done that. I've done that, you've done that. That's just part of a, a good, healthy marriage, you know. That keeps you from killing each other. You know, sometimes you need a little bit of space, right? You just need a little bit of time to cool down. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's referring to a permanent departure. I am not happy with the fact that you have changed because you are now a follower of Jesus Christ and I'm walking out of this marriage. This is not what I signed up for. He's gone, she's gone. Paul says in that case, you're free to remarry. Now, as we talk about breaking this bond in verse 15, I understand that a lot of you want me to say more about it. And it's because some of you have been taught, you've read in a book somewhere, that the bond can be broken in other ways for various reasons. Well, let me just say this. At the end of the day, it's between you and God. But, but 
It's up to you to prove from the Bible. I mean, it's really on you. As your pastor, I, I, can, only, I can only teach you what I can prove from the Bible. After that, it's just my opinion. I don't think you want my opinion. So I'll only go as far as what I can prove. By the way, let me just say this. Be very, very careful about interpreting the Bible so that it fits your situation. Be very, very careful about manipulating the Bible. There's a problem in the church at Galatia. And Paul wrote them a letter. He says, if anybody gives you, teaches to you any other gospel other than that which you have received, which is the inspired word of God, Paul used very strong words. He said, let them be cursed. Be very, very careful. If somebody writes a book, make sure it lines up with Scripture. And don't just go look for a book that agrees with your position. That's a dangerous way to live. I'll give you an example. Going back to last week when Sam was here, as we talked about same-sex attraction and same-sex marriage. By the way, I know some of you couldn't make it last week because we had the incredibly bad winter storm, and uh, i.e. cold rain. And... Uh, so I'd encourage you to go back and watch it on the website. Also, uh, we sold out of books on Saturday night, so we have new copies of his book, Is God Anti-Gay? You can pick it up under the uh, uh, stairs as you leave. If you, It's only five bucks. But obviously, I've had a lot of interaction emails, talking with people over the week, and, um, and it's, it's what I want you to understand, and I'll give you an example of how we can manipulate scriptures. Uh, Same-sex attraction is not a sin. You have no control over who you're attracted to. I'm telling you, Laura's attracted to Adam Levine from Maroon 5. And he sings like a girl. I don't get it. I'm attracted to Gloria from Modern Family. I can't help myself, right? You can't help who you're attracted to, but you can help what you do with those feelings. So there's, there's nothing wrong with having a same-sex attraction, but if you act on those feelings, then that becomes homosexuality. And the Bible says it's a sin, just like gossip is a sin, and slander is a sin, and stealing the gum from the store is a sin. It's a sin. No worse than any other sin, but the Bible says it's a sin. And I, since I didn't write it, I don't have the freedom to say, well, let's, let's not make it a sin. But I've run into all kinds of people, and you wouldn't believe. Well, I found a guy who said that homosexuality in the Bible is not the same as homosexuality today. Or there are different kinds of homosexuality. There's good sexuality, which God accepts, and then there's bad homosexuality, which God doesn't accept. Well, here's the problem. I know the Hebrew and Greek, and there's no different words in the Bible. I don't care what anybody says. I don't care what anybody says. And then somebody will say, well, you know, the word homosexuality is only used six times in the Bible. I mean, how serious should we really have to take that? Well, that's not really true either because the word immorality includes any sexual activity outside the relationship of husband and wife in a marriage. That means premarital sex is immorality. An affair during marriage is immorality. Homosexuality would be immorality. So there's a lot of references. But let's say that there are only six references to homosexuality. There's only one time in the Bible where I can find where God says, manage the earth and rule over it. But we take that seriously, don't we? We're to take care of what God has given us in creation. There's only one place in the Bible where it says, don't be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. Don't marry an unbeliever. God says, I'm, it, I'm telling you, it's in your best interest not to do that. We take that very, very seriously, yet it only appears one time. I'm just saying, be very, very careful about trying to manipulate, interpret the Bible that justifies your situation. Understand when we're talking about marriage, God is in the long-range, permanent marriage business. And for that reason, he only gave us a couple of outs. He only gave us a couple of loopholes. That's not being hard or unfair. It's just the truth. It's just the truth. I mean, you got to get used to the truth. I think part of our problem in culture is nobody 
speaks the truth anymore. And so many people tell me they weren't coming last week and they weren't coming this week because they didn't want to hear what I had to say about it. And they, of course, email me and let me know that. Well, let me tell you something. I mean, can I just be honest with you? Just because you don't want to hear the truth doesn't make it any less the truth. The truth. Okay? Now, what did Jesus say? You know the truth. The truth sets you free. And what you'll discover if you go back and watch Sam's interview, there's a man whose whole life battles same-sex attraction because his commitment to purity that's a man who's free. And all you have to do is spend a little time with him to figure that out. Paul adds in verse 16, For how do we know, a wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, a husband, whether you will save your wife? I know some incredible stories of couples. An, a believer has stayed in the marriage with an unbeliever, and the, and the spouse has come to Christ, and the kids have. And unfortunately, that's not always the case. And in those cases, if your spouse walks away, they desert you because of your faith. You're free to remarry. So there's two. One more, and some of you are thinking, okay, I hope this is mine. I hope this is mine. Here it is. It's divorce prior to becoming a Christian. Divorce prior. If you were divorced prior to becoming a Christian, you have God's blessing to get remarried. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Here's the situation. Before becoming a Christian, somebody marries maybe for all the wrong reasons, and the marriage fell. It ends up in a divorce. After the divorce, maybe months, years, the person becomes a Christian. According to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, or 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that person becomes a new, new creation. The word new there in the Greek is the word kinos. This is the definition of that word. That which is new and unused. Not new in time as in recent, but new in form. For example, if you were to go out this weekend and buy a kinos car, it would be a brand new car, a car that no one's ever driven. Jesus spoke of a new covenant. Paul talked about a new man. John wrote about a new heaven and a new earth. All of these are the same word, kinos, that's used here, a new creation. In the very same way, when a person accepts God's gift of salvation, what Jesus Christ did for them on the cross, and that person becomes a Christian, understand, that makes you a brand new creation. In other words, from God's perspective, your old life is dead. It's as if it never happened. He wipes the slate clean, and you are a kinos creation, new and fresh. And it's because all of your sins, all of your mess-ups, all of your screw-ups, all of your transgressions in your past have been forgiven. Now, here's the question. Is divorce a transgression? Is it a sin? Well, the answer is yes. God says, yeah, I hate it. It's a transgression. But if it's not forgiven, then it's the only sin that's not forgiven, which is illogical. And since that divorce would be a part of your past transgressions and the, state, the slate has been wiped clean, you're, you're free to remarry. So there are your three reasons. A lifestyle of sexual immorality. You're a Christian married to an unbeliever and they choose to walk away from the marriage. Or if you were divorced before you became a Christian. Now if you were here last week, I made the statement in the interview with Sam. That means that there are some times as a church we can't marry you. And so if you come to us and you ask us to do your wedding and we find out there's divorce in your background, we have to dig a little deeper because we have to discover do you have biblical grounds for divorce. Because if you don't, if you don't, then God still sees you bonded to your spouse and this is what jesus meant when he said don't let anybody mess with what god has joined together so you know when i stand before god i have a lot of things that i'm gonna to have to explain i don't want to have to explain that i'm a bond breaker so this is not a rejection of you it's an understanding of the standard that we're called to when it comes 
to biblical marriage. Now, I, w- <laughs> I, I want to close by giving you some words of encouragement. I think you could use them right now. So here's the first one. To the unmarried, that would be the singles, be patient. Be patient. And I know what you're thinking. Heard that before. Well, just be patient. And if you get impatient, I got a perfect thing for you to do. Call the church office and just say, I would like to sit in on a marriage counseling session. Just do that. It will cure you, okay? Trust me, there's a lot of things worse than not having a spouse. That's having the wrong spouse. There's a lot of people here who would love nothing more than to give you their spouse. You don't want them. You don't want them. By the way, if you're single, college, high school, uh, widow, one day you want to get married. A couple of years ago, I, I gave a message, how to find the love of your life. We reposted it on the website. We reposted it um, on your phone app. I would really encourage you, if you're single, I go through in detail what you should be looking for in a spouse. It, it puts you in the best position to have a marriage that's going to last forever. Let me just say this again. Your best chance to survive in marriage is the marriage you're in. 48% of first marriages end in divorce. 62% of second, 73% of third, 80-some percent of fourth. So regardless of where you are on that scale, your best chance of having a surviving marriage that's going to bring you happiness is the one you're in now. Odds go down every time you jump from the next one to the next one. So there you go. To the married, be content. you got to remember that God is at sovereign. you got to remember that God is at work. You know, guys, we get married, we think we're getting Wonder Woman and Martha Stewart all wrapped up in one, you know. You ladies thought you were getting Superman and George Clooney. I mean, if you get a little bit, that's great, but you're not going to get all of it. You know what I'm saying? You know what that means? We have to lower our expectations. No one's ever going to live up to your expectations when you get married. How's that for good news? So the key to the happy marriage marriage is lowering your expectations. I mean, ladies, if you married a guy who picks his underwear up and puts it in the dirty hamper, you got a keeper. You just need to hang on to him. I don't care what else he's doing. I'm just saying. But you got to lower your expectations. Be content. By the way, let me say this. Contentment comes if God gives us the ability to change ourselves, not our spouse. I can't change Laura. She can't change me. I work on me. She works on Laura. Marriage works out. Third, to those with biblical grounds to remarry, be careful. I would encourage you to be really, really wise because you're probably the most vulnerable person listening to me right now. And it's because you have biblical grounds to remarry, but that means you've come out of a painful relationship And if that's the case, you're probably incredibly hungry for a loving Christian relationship. And because of that, the temptation is to fall for the first available person. So even though you have the freedom to remarry, you have God's blessing. Be really, really careful. Seek wise counsel. Proceed very, very, very slowly. Very slowly. To those who are remarried, but you don't have biblical grounds, enjoy. Enjoy. Confess your transgressions. Confess your sin to God. Say, God, now I understand I didn't do it the right way, but you cannot go back and undo the past. You know, the answer isn't to divorce your present spouse and go back and try to resurrect an old marriage. That that ship is sailed. Deuteronomy even says don't do that. You just say, God, I didn't understand. All right, you know what, God? I didn't handle it the right way, so I ask your forgiveness, and I'm going to claim Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You claim that, and then you have every right to enjoy all the pleasures of your new marriage. But just let me add this. Make sure this is the one that lasts. Make sure that this is where you draw the line in the sand and say, I'm going to do this one God's way. Permanent, irrevocable. This is what James says. Now that you know to do right and you don't do it, that's a sin. To him who knows the right thing to do but chooses not to do it, 
It's a sin. So now you can't plead ignorance. Now you know. Fifth, to all of us, let's be careful with the advice we give. What do you say we become the kind of Christians, the kind of friend that's, that, that's, that's looking out for the other person's character, not just their comfort? Let's not automatically say, yeah, they're the right one for you. You ought to marry them just because a person is lonely. Or, wow, you're not happy, you ought to get a divorce. Let's be really, really careful about giving that kind of advice. What do you say we come alongside and we help them hold back on the reins and we encourage them to do life God's way? If you're here this weekend and you're fighting for your marriage, let me, give you, let me recommend a book. It's The Christian Guide to Fighting for Your Marriage. You can get it online. Link's on the website, phone app. And maybe you sit down as an individual. Maybe your spouse is not even ready to read it yet. You start. And you begin to pray and you go from there. See what God is going to do. Next week we're going to talk about communication. The difference between men and women. I know we don't need it, but we'll, we'll talk about it anyway, okay? <laughs> Let's pray. God, you're awesome. I've laid it out the best I can. Your word speaks for itself. May our hearts be tender and not hard. And may you work in our spirits. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.